you don't just try to predict black swans. It's it's pretty difficult. It's not you know it's not easy. But again, there are methods again to go and do that. Um, but what you need to do is to build robustness into the system. So if a black swan even happens, then it will not affect the system or impact the system as much. And I think when you consider matter attack, I mean, these are the clues that you have in order to build that robustness into your systems. That's my friend, Yaron Levy, CISO at Dolby. We're having a chat about what we're all doing wrong in the SOC, specifically how we threat hunt, how we sift alerts looking for events, and how we deal with black swans, which we'll elaborate on shortly. The fundamental approach that Yaron espouses is to start with a hypothesis, an idea of what bad thing might be happening and to then sift data to support or disprove that hypothesis. It's a radical departure from how we manage the SOC today and has some fantastic implications and results. So why don't we dive in? Jeroen, thanks so much for coming on down to the ranch. Alan, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. So Yaron and I are here to chat about what we're doing wrong in the SOC. And I thought before we got started, Yaron, why don't you tell us briefly a little bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about your day job? Uh, Sure. I'm the uh, CISO for Dolby. And I've been in my current role exactly one year. So I joined in the middle of pandemic, which is always interesting, you know, when you onboard to a new job completely from remote and don't see your team face to face. So that's exciting in our brave new world. Prior to that, I was the uh, CISO for uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield here in Kansas City for nearly five years and had roles in the industry, included um, deputy CISO at Cerner, security business partner at Intuit, and a security architect at eBay. I'm also one of the uh, 22 research fellows for the Cloud Security Alliance. So was part of the team who created the uh, CIQ, CCM, and the cloud enterprise architecture. Holy cow, that's some pedigree, people. <laughs> that's good stuff. And the fact that you came from that architectural side um, is is really fascinating to me because what we're about to dive into isn't a topic normally associated with that architectural perspective. But I think part of what you're bringing us is an architectural perspective to what's going on in the SOC and sort of remodeling the entire paradigm behind it. So Talk to me then. What are we doing wrong in the SOC? Oh, man. Where do I start? Well, I think there are three parts for for this problem. First, we collect way too much data. We do a poor job training the SOC analysts, and our analysis and hunting methods are are flawed, in my opinion. So, So let me give you an example. First, why do we collect all this data? Well, the two most common reasons I hear are, first of all, so we don't miss anything. And second, um, so we can do threat hunting. Okay, well, we can ask to ask ourselves, are we successful? And the reality is that for the last 15 plus years, we're actually failing. So most of the data we collect is not actionable. We have a terrible signal to noise ratio. The more data we collect, the more noise we have. So it's not very effective. Second, we do a poor job training the SOC analysts. So many companies don't even have a SOC. Many are lucky if they have like one or two analysts, and often these are entry-level roles. So to be an effective analyst, one needs to understand, first of all, how attackers operate, methods of attack, and no less important, the business architecture and the business context. And it requires years to gain that experience. And on top of that, many companies don't even let their analysts practice with live fire. 
So even if you outsource your SOC, I mean, these analysts usually lack context about your business. So they're not very effective either. Not to mention other business scale challenges that they have in order to make their business profitable. So that's the second problem. The, the third one is our analysis and hunting methods are flawed. So we look at a bunch of alerts and they det- we try to determine if these are IOCs by trying to string them together and build a story, but usually we're groping in the dark. I hear people saying, oh, well, we need to do hunting. Okay, cool. What are you hunting for? So then they will say, well, I look for anomalies. Okay, how do you know what normal is? And, and usually the main answer I get is, well, you see an employee connect at 6 p.m. from China after they sign out at 5.58 p.m. from New York. Yeah, okay. But what, what beyond that? Right. The example everybody gives, and, and you're right, there's much more subtlety to normal versus anomaly in, in any enterprise I've been in. That's, that's the corner case we always talk about, but how often has that actually occurred? Exactly. Yep. All right, so what about UEBA and XDR? Aren't they supposed to be helping us with this? Aren't, aren't we getting some machine analytics that are helping us sift the, the wheat from the chaff, you know, improve the signal-to-noise ratio? Well, they're supposed to, but I think they fall into the same trap. They operate without a context. So I would argue that when you see an alert, it's often text without context, which in turn caused the analyst to often dismiss the alert as false positive. So let's consider the following. Let's say someone runs who am I command on a Linux machine. Right. It will generate an informational alert. Even if the information even is collected, most analysts will dismiss it and say, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's, you know, false positive. We don't care, right? Right. Everyone runs who am I. Exactly. But if there's nothing malicious about the command itself, right, on the other hand, if there's an attacker on the system and they ran who am I command, it means they are one step before privilege escalation, which mm-hmm. now you have a problem. I mean, this is a critical alert, right? So, so the context matter much more than the text. Now, IOCs and alerts, in my opinion, have little value without the proper, proper context. They just send you, you know, get lost down rabbit holes and, you know, what we like to call threat hunting because it is way cooler than rabbit chaser, right? Yeah. So UBA and XDRs are built to cover a wide common denominator. And to be effective in your environment, they must be tuned to your specific context. And that takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. Otherwise, it's just done garbage in, garbage out. So in theory, alleviating the burden in practice, just just putting the burden up at the front of the process and exactly. otherwise still making the same mistakes the humans do. Yep. This idea then that you don't just randomly threat hunt, that you don't randomly chase rabbits, that you that you start with a hypothesis, right? This is the idea you and I talked about is you you want to start with an actual hypothesis. What's a good example of a hypothesis and how does that approach work? Yeah, so when do we learn about hypotheses? Fourth grade, fifth grade? Is that yep. sixth grade? I think that's kind of the first time we introduced to the concept, right? So we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We're just going to need to use, you know, the same things we learned at school way back when. You know, if, if you use the same example, for example, who am I command or, you know, something similar to that, we can make an hypothesis that, for example, adversaries use partial commands to compromise domain controls. Okay, that's, that's your hypothesis, right? Okay. So now you have to ask yourself, okay, how do I collect the right information that will either support or refute that hypothesis? Mm-hmm. So if you collect a bunch of PowerShell commands or you get alerts on PowerShell commands that are being run on specific you know, domain controller, during the normal course of the day, I mean, you will see things happening here and there. I mean, maybe some admin is doing something or whatever. But you're not allowed to assume these are false positives. What will happen is that if you collect more and more and you start seeing 
maybe a pattern, you start seeing that, okay, it kind of raises the level of like, why is it happening and how do we feel about it? And do we actually think that it's really the admin or not? You know what? Let's declare it, maybe not an incident just yet, but an event. And let's go and talk to Johnny, who is the admin on that part, on that, you know, domain controller. And he asks, Johnny, is that you? Are you actually doing something right now? The worst that can happen, Johnny will get pissed off and say, okay, like, why are you coming and ask me, like, you know, every three days, right? But at least you know that it was him and you didn't end up with an incident. Right. On the flip side, if you say, well, no, it's fine. I know it's Johnny. Well, okay, you keep ignoring, keep ignoring it. But what if Johnny's, you know, credentials were compromised, right? So... Start with a hypothesis and then look for evidence or look for information to either support or refute that. And if you come to Johnny and Johnny show you an evidence, yeah, it's me, I log the ticket, I'm actually doing maintenance on the machine. Okay, cool. So close the event and move on. So I think we completely need to change the approach. I mean, don't just look for alert. Stop chasing our tail, you know, hunting for only what looks interesting. And like I said, don't assume that an event is benign. Just, you know, out of the bat, just, just ignore and, and don't say, oh, it's a false positive. Because if we start with a hypothesis and every piece of data we collect help us to support or refute the hypothesis, whether we, whether we succeed or fail, like any scientific research, right, it will move us further in our research. So we're going to make progress. It'll, it'll strengthen our hypothesis making mechanism, even if it doesn't strengthen the one hypothesis, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, Const, constant forward progress for the whole, for the whole industry sort of approach. Right, because think about you know how we do it like in the past or, or traditionally how we do it, right? So until 1697, it was well known that all swans are white. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? Because that's the only swans that people ever saw. They never saw like any black swan. But only, though I think it was a Dutch explorer who um, saw the first black swan in Australia, right? I mean, that's refuted the whole hypothesis of like, oh, swans are not only white. I mean, they're actually black swans, right? Mm-hmm. So... Again, it's going back to, instead of looking for more and more evidence to support your hypothesis, look for the one evidence that will refute it. And as long as you don't find it, then your hypothesis, I mean, is still whole, right? Right. And uh, if we touch on the black swan, there's actually a good book that I think every security practitioner must read that is called The Black Swan Theory mm-hmm. by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And it's basically, initially, I mean, Nassim Taleb is writing mostly about, you know, the financial markets, I mean, and things like that. But in the book... He regards almost all major scientific discoveries, historical events, and, and artistic accomplishments as black swans. And if you think what a black swan event is, it's, the event is a surprise to the mm-hmm. observer, mostly. It has a major effect. And after the first recorded instance of the event, it is rationalized by hindsight. So you can look back and say, oh, we should actually have seen that one, right? Sounds like right. almost like every data breach. So Right. Yeah. So... Highly recommended, I mean, to start, to kind of read that book, but start thinking in those terms and how we approach it. I like that, and I like the strengthening the hypothesis metaphor, and I love the fact that you're right. Every time the black swan appears in retrospect, it was obvious all along. We just didn't get there through the hypothesis mechanism. But that, that brings up a potential flaw, doesn't it, in this hypothesis model, and that is how much gets left on the floor while you're chasing one hypothesis. That, that is true, um, but when something doesn't... Um, contribute them into a hypothesis, you can file it for later. And you can always look at some things in retrospect as well. So don't just dismiss it and throw it to the floor. Keep it somewhere. I mean, we keep the data. We keep, you know, a lot of data. But we can always go back and we can always replay and, and check and say, okay, does it now I have new evidence? Is my previous data now supports the new evidence? Okay. 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 So 
I guess then, if we're going to go with this hypothesis model, the first thing that comes to my mind is miter attack. Mm-hmm. Like, what a great starting position for a, a, a catalog of hypotheses, basically. Is that is that valid? Yeah, I, I think miter attack is, is a great framework to use because it can help us imagine, you know, what types of attack and how attacks actually work and operate, right? So um, one of the things that Nassim Taleb is talking about in his book is the fact that you don't just try to predict black swans. It's it's pretty difficult. It's not, you know, it's not easy. But again, there are methods, again, to go and do that. But what you need to do is to build robustness into the system. So if a black swan even happens, then it will not affect the system or impact the system as much. And I think mm. when you consider matter attack, I mean, these are the clues that you have in order to build that robustness into your systems. So start with a good old threat modeling, right? Create hypotheses around these threats to your environment, to your company. And then if you simulate various scenarios that you can use the MITRE attack for that, and for every log you receive, you decide whether it supports your hypothesis or not, right? And then if you see a cluster of events that support your hypothesis, you declare an incident. And then you move immediately to response. Even if it turns out as a false positive later, but I much rather and that you overreact and you overreacted, but I much rather deal with a false positive than end up with a false negative. Because if it's a false negative, then okay, we ignored it and you know something bad happened, right? That makes perfect sense. And you know, it's interesting the robustness to cope with the black swan event. This ties into, I, I think, and it's not a per se definition of it, but anti-fragility. This new movement that resilience needs to be anti-fragility. You need to be anti-fragile versus black swan events as as an inherent part of anti-fragility, I would think. So so I think I think there's two models that are sort of colluding and tying together that are both in, indicative of new trends in how we're doing things in cyber. Absolutely. And uh, that's just a, just an interesting sidebar in my brain there that that popped up. All right, so we start with something like uh, threat modeling. We get into MITRE ATT&CK. Now we've got hypotheses. Now we've got models of how that a hypothesis might execute. What about business outcomes? How do we tie this hypothesis model to business outcomes? Because as we all know, business outcomes is why we're here. Absolutely. I, I love this question um, because I think, you know, this is the essence of everything we do in security and, and how we tie it to business outcome. This is where our security strategy is coming from. So starting with the end in mind and working backwards from there, the first thing you have to ask yourself is why the business exists and what value does it generate? And once we understand and know that, you look at the business goals. And keeping all of that in mind, you need to threat model and come with adverse scenarios to prevent the business from achieving their goals. And then let's create various hypotheses about the actuality of these threat scenarios and then build your monitoring around these pieces of data that will help you to support or refute that hypothesis. So if you do that, and systemically, I mean, you're, you're moving I mean, through this process, you can quantify it. And if you can quantify it, then you can actually go back to your management, you can go back to, you know, to your leadership and say, here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing this, here's why, how it connects you know, to the business outcomes, and you can support that as opposed to say, well, we don't have enough people. We're running out of you know, storage space. I need more money to collect more logs because I'm afraid I'm going to miss something. Right? It completely changes the conversation. Right. And, and the reality is you're missing lots anyway, even with that giant amount of exactly. log storage. The more, you, the more you spend on aggregation and storage, statistically, the more you're missing because there's no way you've got the, the manpower to, to sift through all that stuff anyway. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. 
Axonius has crossed the chasm, the first company to solve the cybersecurity asset management problem. Gartner has recognized cyber asset attack surface management chasm as a category in their hype cycle for network security 2021 report. Axonius gives its customers a comprehensive, always up-to-date asset inventory, helps uncover security gaps, and automates as much of the manual remediation as you want. Take a look at Exonius and give your teams time back to work on the high value cyber initiatives they were trained to do. Let's drill in a little bit and get into some specific hypotheses. Like, like I'm, you know, I'm thinking in terms of business outcomes, like, like let's go through a mental exercise right now live here sure. and do something. So I'm picturing like, you know, business outcomes. We, we are, uh, I don't know, let's say we're a hospital okay. and, you know, Getting patients through the system as quickly as possible in the sense of getting them the care they need and not having holdups. So we've got to store and have certain bits of information on file that we can immediately reference and use, like here's their healthcare background, here's their insurance info. And then from there we say, okay, so there's a business objective. Let's let's get that information in a centralized location that expedites and speeds up the process of getting them the care they need. So there's mm -hmm. a business objective. Yeah. And now Let's start with the threat model. So why don't, why don't you take the threat model step? Sure, absolutely. There are a couple of things you can think about. So if we think about the threat model, if we think about, you know, how do we think the potential impact, right? I mean, to, to the organization, to the company. So going back to our tried and true model of uh, the CIA triad, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, right? Let's take this hospital, for example. Confidentiality is important. Because, you know, I have a lot of private information about all of these patients. Well, I can do a lot of bad things with this information. For example, I can take this information, I can extort people and say, hey, I know you have this and that medical condition. And, you know, unless you're going to pay me money, I'm, you know, going to go public with it. I don't know if you remember, but I think there was like a couple of months ago, there was something, somebody was actually compromised. I think it was in healthcare system. I'm not 100% sure. But basically, you know, it's you really can't really sell health records. I mean, nobody really buys them, um, right. honestly. But what he did, or that attacker, what he did was actually something clever. He started to contact the people and say, hey, I have a database with all your information. If you pay me, you know, whatever, $50, I'm just going to delete your information. Well, $50 time million patients, that's a lot of money. Right. Now, granted, I mean, he has to contact one by one, you know, and so on, but still... Sure. I mean, like, you know, it's a w easier way to make that money uh, than not, right? All right. So there's our hypothesis. Bad guy's going to acquire the data from the centralized location, and he's going to extort the individuals involved. Yes, that's, another, that's one. Another one, we can talk about availability. If I want to shut down the hospital, if I render these systems unavailable, mm. and now you have to turn patients away. Now you start thinking about threatening lives, right? I mean, because... Yep. If somebody gets to the hospital, especially, you know, during these times, and you have to turn it away because you cannot treat them, I mean, that's another, th you know, another threat. So now we have our hypothesis. Now let's start looking at data that we can collect that will either support or refute that, right? And okay. you can use the MITRE ATT&CK framework to start breaking down and finding methods or ways um, to accomplish each one of those threats, right? In other words, going back to risk measurement, the likelihood. So, like yeah, that. we could probably spend a few hours, I mean, just kind of going down and whiteboard and kind of going back to what you said about architecture and stuff like that, right? I mean, right. so we can build all those different, you know, scenarios and, and, and trees. And really, it's, it's reversing the process, right? So we're not collecting pieces of data and trying only then connect the dots and build the story. 
Mm-hmm. We're doing it backwards. We're starting with the story first, the context. Yeah. And then we're looking backwards and trying to collect pieces of data to support or refute it. Which is funny. It's funny. It sounds like intuitive, right? But somehow we don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason I say it's funny is as CISOs, we often tell ourselves that when we're reporting upstairs, we better have a story. Right. Here's the CISO data that I've gathered, and here's the metrics, and here's the things I'm doing. Here's the things I've uncovered. Here's the steps I've taken. But it's always in the context of a story. You don't go to the board with a raw set of data. You go to the board with a story. Exactly. And yet when we internally face our own program, we're starting with data, not with a story. So, so this whole model is sort of aligning the, uh, the technical practice, if you will, with the CISO's business practice, really. Right. I mean, that's, that's what we're saying here. Absolutely right. And then if you have the story, it makes it much easier for you to explain the why. Mm-hmm. Because people at the end of the, way, the day, they connect to your why. Do not yep. connect to exactly what you do. I mean, yeah, they trust that you're the expert. I mean, they trust you that you know your craft. You haven't been where you are. I mean, if you didn't have this experience and proved it, you know, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But that's only going to get you so far. To get the real support, people need to connect with your why. Yeah. I've got an old mentor who always says, lead with the why. Yes. Don't get into the how and the what and the details until you've led with the why. Just why are we here? Why are we doing this? Why do we care? Exactly. As a reminder to all of us in this room. We're here That's to protect exactly the right. patients, you know, yes. and then, and what does that mean? Protect the patients. And then, then you, then you take off. So it's, it's that storytelling. I love that. So we've kind of touched on this a little bit then, but you know, there's downstream implications for this too. And I'm thinking through the entire IR process. So we've got our storytelling narrative. We, we've got our why mm-hmm. we've got our threat model. We've mm-hmm. got our miter attack. We have an entire, you know, we've decided this is a real potential event. Now uh, we've escalated it and said it's an event what are the downstream implications? I'm thinking in terms of the traditional IR process and, and all the convoluted steps that we go through in incident response. How <laughs> yeah. does this model change all that? Yeah, I, I, we could probably, I don't know, just maybe spend like a, another show just, I mean, talking about that. Um, right. But I want to, I'm going to address it from maybe a little bit of a different angle. Because let, let me start with the people first. You know, there is a lot of talk in the industry about stress and burnout, especially in the SOC, right? And, and, I even heard some people said, hey, you know, they suffer from like a PTSD after working in the SOC. I mean, they don't want right. to even hear about it. They don't want to touch it. They don't want to do anything with it, right? Why is that? Well, one of the reasons is that people in the security profession usually are pretty mission-driven. And, yep. you know, we, we take a lot of pride in, in, in the role and we take it seriously. And, you know, we feel that what we do is important. We serve a purpose, right? It's usually is higher than just us. So we don't want to miss the important stuff. And we shove more and more data and we get more and more information that we don't know what to do with, what to do with. So it's, it's, you know, in order to keep up, you have to work harder and harder and harder. So it's like running on this kind of treadmill and trying to run faster and faster and faster. And somebody's keep cranking the speed on you all the time, right? Right. Because you don't have, you don't want to have a bridge, you know, on your watch, right? And then if something happens... Where do you usually point the finger? Yeah, to the CISO and to the team and everybody else. But people don't like fit to feel that failure and they just kind of fail that mission. Mm-hmm. So we all have that deep-seated fear in the back of our mind. We're getting paid pretty well. We're working very hard. We're trying the best we can. But if you look at the industry, you continue to fail. Right. And and it's really depressing when you when you go to like some of the um you know, trade shows or, or you go to, you know, you talk to people. And I don't know about you, but over the last 
maybe five or six years, I feel there is this sense of defeat in the industry, mm-hmm. right? And I think part of what we're talking about here is actually, look, yeah, it's not an easy problem to solve, but we don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, there's, there's a sense of hope here, and I'm hoping that, you know, it's just going to give like a new hope, I mean, for, for our, you know, defenders, like, we can use the same methods, I mean, that, you know, we taught at fifth grade and actually make progress as opposed to just keep running on this hamster wheel and trying to, you know, faster and faster and faster, trying not to, to miss anything, right? I'm picturing when the hamster runs so fast that he starts to spin around in the wheel. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's the plight of the sock analyst right there, folks. That's exactly right. So, you know, if we think about how, how people feel and, and if we think about, hey, you know, we have this monkey on our back, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this approach that is actually rooted in science gave us new hope, right? And then I think, you know, when, when from an IR perspective, back to your question, we need to make more systemic, we need to take more systemic approach to this based on the attack simulation, based on attack simulation. So for example, something I've done, you know, uh, with my teams in the past, but in order for us to be able to quantify it, in order for us to be able to show like meaningful results, we just have to simulate specific attacks. Start with mm-hmm. one, take one hypothesis. Now let's simulate attack that test that hypothesis, right? And then answer three questions. Can we see it? Do we know what to do with it? And where are we successful? Just one. Mm-hmm. And once you master the one, then move to the next one. And then mm-hmm. to the next one, right? So you're going to gain two things. Not only you will be able to quantify and show value for the effort and what we're doing, but it's also going to train the team. And they will actually feel that they are accomplishing something continuously, as opposed to just running on the hamster wheel for, you know, to no end. I like that, and it it sets you up for more successes too. And the, you know, you mentioned the depression thing. One one thing I always counsel people in in this industry is you have to learn to take the small wins. Yes, you have to learn to celebrate the small victories. And and with this model, you're going to have successful simulations. Right. And you're going to be able to say, hey, look at us. We, we anticipated this particular bad thing. We were ready for this particular bad thing. And, you know, maybe we weren't 100% ready, but we are now. That's exactly and right. let's go do another one. Let's go do another one. Let's go do another one. And, and those small victories, you know, to the just the emotional and mental health of the team, I think, are so critical in this industry. To your point, that sense of defeat looms heavily over all of us, I think. Yes. And, and my best advice for getting past that is, you know, two things. One is those small victories. And the other thing is just stopping to remember, this is a noble calling. We're, we're doing good works here. Exactly. Absolutely. And, and, and I and, love what you say about small wins, right? I mean, even if we are 5% better, we're still 5% better. Exactly. So it's like a compounding interest, right? I mean, get the 5%, then get another 1%, then another 3%, right? You look yep. back, I mean, six months from now, hey, we made a lot of progress. That's that's a good thing. I like that a lot. This has been a fantastic conversation. This has been a very dense show, like lots of valuable information in a, in a relatively short amount of time here. But let's switch topics. I'll ask you the question I ask every guest towards the end of the show. What have you learned outside of cybersecurity that has helped you in cybersecurity? And you're not allowed to say the hypothesis model I learned in fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Well... If I had to pick one thing, I would say building trust. Mm. Because we have a lot of super smart people in our profession. And we take a lot of pride, you know, in, in knowing our craft and being technically correct, you know, and so on. But what I learned is that it is far better to lead with your EQ than your IQ. Mm-hmm. So your ultimate goal in my mind is to become a trusted advisor and the go-to person. To get there, you have to build relationships. 
you have to build deep, meaningful, authentic relationships. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you have to move from what my coach used to call the I zone, kind of focus only on me, to the we zone. Focus on the collective, focus on us, focus on like, you know, what are we, what am I doing for others? So show up and, and kind of what do you do for others, right? This is how you build trust. And when you earn that trust, everything is follows much, much easier. And I think, you know, this is something that I intentionally and very, very consciously try to do every day in my day-to-day life, in my job, I mean, everywhere else with my friends, I mean, with people I meet. Just as an example, starting at Dolby, I succeeded a person who've been here 11 years. He obviously mm. had a lot of trust w- with him, right? Here I am, like the new guy, just coming you know, to the company. By the way, I onboarded from remote. Over in, in one year, it took me, in one year, I only saw my team only once face-to-face. Oh, wow. Uh, because you couldn't travel because of the pandemic and so yeah, yeah. on. So how do you do that? How do you build those relationships and how do you build that trust? Again, onboarding from, from remote. And I had to be very, very intentional about it. Um, I don't know if I earned that yet. I mean, you know, my colleagues probably can, can say that. Um, but I'm, I'm bringing that focus on the relationship, focus on the trust, and, and really deliver on my promise every day because at the end of the day is what I'm doing for them not what I'm doing for me. That's a great answer. Well, your own Levy, CISO at Dolby, brilliant strategist in the cybersecurity community. Thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. Mm-hmm.